Well, I have to confess, I am not a very spontaneous person. In fact, our entire household is filled with planners. On Friday, my youngest daughter was emailing or texting me, uh, frustrated that her summer boss has not let her know her full schedule for the entire summer. Um, and my oldest daughter called me yesterday and for 40 minutes explained to me the next six years of her life. She's got a plan. And so uh, it's probably not a surprise then in knowing that, that we set a plan as a family for vacations when our girls were really young. We didn't want to miss some opportunities. So we set out a plan where every two years we'd go on a, on a vacation. Where we would go, we had listed out by year. So early on, we went to Michigan and to a family camp that I once worked at and saw some sites along the way. Uh, another year, we went to the Black Hills and Mount Rushmore in Colorado. Uh, we went to Washington, D.C. and Virginia, including some Civil War battlefields. We went to Gettysburg and Antietam. Um, we've been to New York City and Boston on another trip, and then we even took a trip to Switzerland, where we once lived, and we visited France and Germany while we were there. So in roughly about a dozen years, we went on six memorable family vacations. And I firmly believe that if we had not made a plan, we would now have regrets about things we wanted to do with the girls that we weren't able to do. But not everyone is wired like us. So if we're on sort of the planned end, some would say overly rigid end, uh, we have some really dear friends who are on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. They're very, very spontaneous people. So this year, spring break's coming, and they didn't even begin to think about spring break until the week that spring break started. And in fact, the planning didn't start until Wednesday. Spring break's on Friday, you know. They, they started working on it on Wednesday, kicked into gear, quickly planned a week-long trip to Gulf Shores, Alabama, um, where they went, had a great time. Um, but if you think that's ever going to happen in our family, uh, that's very unlikely. So have we ever done, you might ask, anything spontaneous? Well, we almost did something once, and um, <laughs> I'll, I'll just tell you about it. We, <clears throat> Kathy's, uh, during Kathy's pregnancies, we decided to remain in the dark about whether we were having a boy or a girl. Kathy felt like she's going to go through all that hard work. She wanted a reward at the end. Um, so long before the girls were uh, born, we started coming up with names. And so we came up with the big list, and then we narrowed it down to the top ten boys and girls' names, top five, top three. And then we, before the girls, probably weeks, probably a month or more before they were each born, we had a boy's name and a girl's name. So when our oldest was born, she was either going to be Amy, or if she'd been a boy, she would have been Andrew. When Kathy got pregnant with our second, she's, we just rolled the boy's name over and went down to the next name on the girls' list. That was Hannah. And so on July 27, 1996, um, we welcomed a healthy baby girl into the family. And when she was all cleaned up, the nurse looked at Kathy and said, so what are you going to name her? And Kathy said, Bridget Ann. <laughs> and, and I was absolutely speechless. Um, Bridget was not in the, I think she was in the top 10, or it was in the top 10, but not certainly in the top five or top three, or certainly not the name that we had decided on. And to be honest, I really wasn't sure what to do. And I, I thought for a moment, what about the drugs? Well, we actually only arrived at the hospital 55 minutes before Hannah was born, so there, were, there wasn't time for an epidural. It was really early in the morning, so maybe this was a sleep deprivation thing. But anyway, 15 minutes later, Kathy turned to me and said, um, we agreed we were going to name her Hannah, right? I, I nodded, and she called the nurse over and told her to change the name to Hannah Kathleen. And I've always regretted that we didn't at least do one spontaneous thing in our life. The only saving grace is that our daughter Hannah likes her name. She doesn't like the name Bridget, so otherwise I think we'd probably be in trouble. But I did kind of wonder if we should have done that spontaneous thing. And all that planning and lack of spontaneity carries over into the way that I do things here at City Church. So you may not know this, but every July I go off for a couple of weeks of study leave. And part of what I do in those weeks is 
design a teaching plan for the next year. Usually I've had some input from board and staff and thought about it before, but I narrow it down and we come up with a plan for all of the next year. So in July, I'm going to go off and come up with a plan for 2018. That means we know as much as uh, six months to a year and a half in advance what we're going to talk about. And so you might ask, well, have you ever deviated? And the answer is we've tweaked it along the, the edges. Occasionally we might change something but no less than a month in advance because we certainly wouldn't want to run out the clock. And uh, in 12 years, I have never changed what I was planning to teach on the week of until this week. And uh, what you may notice if you are observant and have looked at your program this morning is uh, that it says I'm going to be speaking on Psalm 145. Uh, Lee Colvin is our communications director, and she's on a couple of weeks of vacation, so a week ago, so what, 10, 10, 11 days ago, she printed two weeks worth of programs and just assumed, since I never change anything, that we would have Psalm 145. By the way, there's one other mistake in the program you can, some of you will probably find. But, um, you know, I got to thinking, and I'll explain that in a moment, well, maybe I'm going to make a change. It kind of upset and disoriented everybody. Devin had to think about new music and um, in fact, I didn't even really pick a psalm. I picked a type of psalm for this week, of which I'm going to give you several examples. So you might ask, well, why did you make a change? Amy did a great job last week kicking, on this, kicking off this little three-week series we're having on the psalms. And we're calling it Songs from the Heart because the psalms work differently than much of the rest of the Bible. Most of the Bible is God's word to us, and the psalms are our words to God. The psalms flow directly out of our human experience in a surprising and comprehensive way. And frankly, if you read the Psalms, you'll find out that it's not the nice, neat, and tidy book that many imagine it to be. So there are things like, great is the Lord, most worthy of praise, no one can measure his greatness. There are all sorts of lines like that scattered throughout. But there also, also are some uncomfortable ideas, lines that you wouldn't think that a Christian would say, and yet they're there. For example, from Psalm 35, may those who seek my life be disgraced and put to shame. May ruin overtake them by surprise. May the net they hid entangle them. May they fall into the pit to their ruin. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord. And you look at that and say, well, that's not too horrible. All this person is doing is saying, these enemies who've put traps for me, I just want them to fall into their own traps. Um, but there are some psalms that go a step further. In fact, some that go a significant step further. And let me read an example from Psalm 137, verse 9. Happy is the one who takes your babies and smashes them against the rocks. Or how about this one from Psalm 58? Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Lord, tear out the fangs of those lions. May they be like a slug that melts away as it moves along, like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. The righteous will be glad when they are avenged, when they dip their feet in the blood of the wicked. Now, last week when Amy talked about the Psalms, she compared them to a playlist, and she said that we can read the Psalms a lot of different ways. One way, she said, you can kind of press shuffle and just see what comes up next and find something that maybe fits your mood on a day. So you re start reading one and say, ah, I'm not doing that one. You can press skip and move on to the next one. But she also suggested that there's some value in letting the Psalms playlist go from start to finish, from 1 to 150, regardless of our mood. And that's when last week I started to panic because I know that some of you are new to reading the Bible. And I thought, uh-oh, if you start reading the Bible, you're going to bump into one of these psalms of vengeance that we'll talk about today. You don't have to read too far, in fact, to bump into one, because Psalm 11 says this, 
The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. That's the burn down, you know, call down fire upon your enemies. Now, you also find surprising lines in even some of our most beloved psalms. So Psalm 23 is one that many of you may know or be familiar with, and it begins with some wonderful comforting words. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. So, so, so far, so good, right? Then he moves on to some words of comfort and peace in times of difficulty. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then comes this line. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What's he talking about there? Well, what he's doing is gloating. And he's saying, God, what I want you to do is to make a big table, a feast, have me and those who are close to me sit down around it, and my enemy will have to watch from the edges of the room and not even be able to take a bite. This, suddenly, this one of the most beloved of all psalms gets a little uncomfortable. So what are we to do with these kinds of psalms? Bible scholars call them imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory is just a big word for psalms that call down judgment, calamity, and curses on our enemies or those who are perceived to be enemies of God. And to be blunt, as we've already talked about, these are kind of call down fire on your enemies' psalms. And most of us have been taught that anger is bad. Even more, we're told that we should never wish bad things would happen to others, even those who might be our enemies. So while we might be tempted to call down fire on our enemies, we know better, and so we sanitize our prayers. And then you start reading the Psalms, and you bump into one of these, and uh, you say, what gives? The Psalms, well, what they really are is our heart expressions to God, which sometimes means that we will say things that are awkward and uncomfortable, because that's what we're feeling. What I think we learn from reading the Psalms is that it is okay for us to say out loud what our feeling that what we're feeling, that God is not offended by us expressing what is in our hearts. But still, it's uncomfortable to run into these psalms of vengeance because we wonder, where is the love your enemies, the turn the other cheek and forgive those who sin against us? Instead, what we have is people saying that they want God to get the guys who've done it. Here's a longer section from Psalm 109 when the poet says, appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accursed Cursor, stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him be found guilty, and may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruit of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off. May their names be blotted out from the next generation. That's uncomfortable, isn't it? And here's what people have done with these kinds of psalms in the past. They've either ignored them or in some cases even tried to eliminate them, not by cutting pages out of the Bible, but often when you're putting together, or when people in the past have put together prayer books, um, they've eliminated these kinds of psalms and just picked ones that are a little more appropriate. You remember the verse about smashing babies on the rocks? That comes from Psalm 137. It's a short psalm, just nine verses, and the rest of it is fairly tame. So it's often included in prayer books in churches that have more formal liturgical traditions. 
except most of the time that the psalm is included, it just includes verses 1 to 8, and they leave verse 9 off. It disappears. Now, I'm not unsympathetic because this kind of stuff has always bothered me, so I'm tempted, just like others, to overlook them. This week I picked up a Bible I used for many years and underlined a lot, and I looked at smattering of some of these kinds of psalms of vengeance, and I realized as I looked through them that I didn't underline any of those verses. I think it's because I was afraid sometime I'd lose the Bible and someone would find it and scan on one of those and think that perhaps there was something wrong with me. But in all of this, I believe the Bible is also written for our instruction. So what that says is that maybe we ought to work a little harder to understand what's going on. What do these Psalms tell us about ourselves and what might they tell us about God? And I think the first thing we can observe is that we need to start with some honesty because all of us, from time to time, have felt these feelings of a desire for vengeance. We're all happy when the bad guy gets what he or she deserves. And admit it, you probably felt great in high school when the class jerk got humiliated by the sweet little homecoming queen. And something inside of you feels right when you turn on the radio and you hear a Carrie Underwood song where she's talking about what she did when her husband cheated on her. I dug my key into the side of his pretty little souped-up four-wheel drive, carved my name into his leather seats. I took a Louisville slugger to both headlights. I slashed a hole in all four tires. Maybe next time he'll think before he cheats. That's a vengeance psalm. (laughs) And this stuff can quickly get personal because all of us have experiences like this. A friend uh, told me this week that he discovered someone had stolen his credit card number. And rather than do what people often do when they steal a credit card or a credit card number, they make a pile of charges in a short period of time, this person just started dripping small charges every week or 10 days. And because he wasn't really paying attention, just paying his bill, it actually totaled up over a six-month period to several hundred dollars. I mean, can't do anything except about the most recent charges. Or this week I talked to a friend whose wife left him several years ago. And when she did, she slandered him. She continues to spread lies to anyone who will listen. And my blood boils thinking about the ways that she has hurt him and continues to get away with it. Or I had another conversation this week with a friend about a very painful time in my life when someone I knew well and trusted betrayed me. Even though it's been years now and there are no lingering consequences, it still hurts. And talking about it this week resurfaced the emotions that I thought I had in check. Even if it seems totally unchristian, I identify with the poet in Psalm 69 when he writes, May the table set before them become a snare, may become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. Essentially, he's saying, go to hell. So again, what are we supposed to do with these psalms? Well, I have two things I'd like to try to do with us, or with uh, the time that we have remaining. And the first is to take a crack at trying to make sense of why these are in the Bible. And secondly, make some suggestions about what we can do with our own feelings of vengeance. So first, why are these in the Bible? We think of anger as an entirely negative emotion. Um, That's because so often our anger is unjustified. Often what our anger is, is it's built out of frustration that someone or something has prevented us from getting something our selfish desires have fixed their, uh, their sights on. Or because we can't control someone in the way that we would like to. But there is another kind of anger, righteous anger, 
Um, anger that is the emotional link to our sense of injustice about what's going on in the world, our sense of an understanding of what's right and wrong. So it's normal to feel outraged when we've been wronged or we see someone else wronged. The anger we feel needs to be acknowledged. It's not healthy to stuff it. It will eventually come out, and when it does, we may do something that we later regret. The truth is that we cannot be cool and detached about injustice. When we see or experience evil, we really ought to be outraged. The poets who wrote the Psalms and the prophets who spoke in the Old Testament times were outraged on behalf of the persecuted, the dispossessed, the mocked, the dehumanized of the world, and they poured out their anger to God. In fact, I would argue that the more we know of God, it's more likely that we will experience this kind of righteous anger at what we see going on around us. The lack of concern for the poor, the disregard for life, the polluting of God's good creation, the objectifying of women, the selfishness that we see among those who have way more than enough, who take advantage of those who cannot make ends meet. We ought to get mad when someone is raped, a drunk kills a drug dealer sells pot to a child, or when people sell people to other people. These things make God mad, and they ought to make us mad as well. Do you know what's worse than anger and outrage at injustice? It's a lack of anger and outrage at injustice. If we're not in some way upset when we see injustice, we should be alarmed. We should be more concerned by our complacency and indifference than our anger. And one reason the ancient Jewish poets complained so bitterly to God about their enemies is because they took right and wrong so seriously. But they had a different way of dealing with it than we often do. Rather than a flaming tweet or some kind of screed on Facebook, they went to God with their anger. Injustice should make our blood boil, but it should also bring us to our knees. And when we pray, we're taking steps into the presence of God where we learn often that he has better ways of helping us deal with our anger than we have ourselves. So, in some ways, we ought to stop putting on our Sunday best when we pray. Let's be honest with God, both with our hallelujahs and our, and our hurts. But the point of these psalms isn't don't feel that way. Instead, it's a question that we ought to ask ourselves, and that is what we are going to do with these feelings of vengeance. Let me give you three options that we can do, three things we can do with our thirst for vengeance. First of all, we can act it out. Now, of course, as good Christian people, we wouldn't do that, right? And I would argue, in general, we shouldn't. But there are certain occasions when God calls out for righteous anger to drive us to speak for those who are dispossessed, those who have been mistreated. And the problem, of course, is that so often um, we're not very good at keeping our anger righteous. But still, there are times when we need to act. But we just need to be careful when we do. Another option is to deny it. Now, the problem with denial is that if we don't confront our anger, if we don't deal with it, it just keeps building up. And when anger builds up, it has to go somewhere. And if we don't find a way to diffuse these emotions, we're at risk of acting on our anger in inappropriate ways. And that's why probably the most important thing we need to do with this kind of righteous anger, this indignation, this feelings of vengeance that we may have, is to give it over to God. The poets demonstrate that anger, if left unchecked, eats away at the inside of us. And the best thing we can do is hand it over to God. Said differently, what the Psalms of Vengeance do is help us channel our anger to and through God rather than at anyone else. Help us channel our anger to and through God rather than at anyone else. And giving our anger to God 
starts with letting him know what's in our hearts and then asking him to handle it for us. Let me just give an illustration from, for those of you who have had children, you know uh, that often people tell you that uh, children are wonderful little innocent things and then you have one um, and then you have two and you find that pretty quickly those two kids get in conflict and uh, those sweet little cherubs that you see in Hallmark commercials are not quite so innocent. And so what one child will do is hit or do something uh, inappropriate with the other child and so the one who's innocent will come to you and say, you know, can I hit my brother? And you say, no, let me handle it. The reason is, is that if you're a wise parent, what you're doing is you're acting a little bit more dispassionately, a little bit more fairly, and not letting the anger of that child take vengeance on the other. And that's in some ways what we can do with God. God is better equipped to handle our anger than anyone. So I think it's entirely appropriate to tell him how we feel. God, I'm mad as heck and I don't know what to do. I'm boiling over with anger, even hatred. And if you don't help me with this, there's no telling what I might do. And then trust God to do what is right and merciful and fair. Do not take things into your own hands. Instead, leave the vengeance to God. Which brings us to an intuition that many of us have, an intuition inspired and informed by the words of Jesus. And that is that rather than hold on to our anger, we need to learn to love our enemies. So how do we do that? The vengeance psalms help us because... We cannot love our enemies until we acknowledge our feelings. God is not asking us to fold our hands and spout platitudes, but we're also to learn to love those whom we might normally hate. But to do so, we need to understand what love really is. And this is where Jesus helps us the most. The way Jesus taught about love is that love is not having warm-hearted feelings towards someone else. It's an active activity. It's the things that we do. So Jesus defines love in a way where we do things for people even if we may not feel them. So when we're struggling with anger towards someone, it helps for us to honestly express our anger to God, to give it to him, to let him take care of it, and then look for ways in which we can learn to love those who may hate us. In that way, it's much easier to let it go. And that doesn't mean, though, that it is easy, because it's always hard. Even saying love your enemies is recognizing the reality that people have done awful things sometimes to us. So we shouldn't be naive because the world can be a dangerous place. But we can bring our anger to God, ask him to work justice, and then help us to love both the victim and the perpetrator. And for that, we can look to the example of Jesus, who had his own enemies, those that Jesus loved and prayed for, and yet they killed him. Then we can act in loving ways toward our enemies. And one way we can do that is by praying for them. A number of years ago, I had a conflict with a friend, and I felt misunderstood. I believed that I'd been treated unfairly, and for several months, I was really angry. And I was trying to figure out what to do, and I asked a friend who said, he said, well, why don't you pray for this person? So I decided to pray, and, and I knew that in this person's life, they, they owned a business, and the business was struggling. The, the sector they were in was in a bit of difficulty. So I began to pray that business might pick up, and even though the industry didn't pick up, this particular person's business did. And I, along the way, my anger disappeared, or not completely, but it dissipated in significant ways. And that friendship has been restored. Now, I think that what we really ought to do here is to acknowledge the anger we feel. Don't stuff it. To leave our anger with God, not to lash out on Facebook, and to remember that God can handle it and knows that he takes it, know that he takes it seriously. Sooner or later, he will act and turn right into wrong. I have a good friend who says that time and truth walk hand in hand.
Now, in just the few moments that we have left, I'd like us to do something, and it may be awkward for some, but I, I hope that it will be helpful. And that is, I'd just like you to close your eyes and for us to go through an exercise of really trying to follow some of the advice that we've talked about today. So if you can, please close your eyes and think of the person who has hurt you or hurt someone that you love. And in the midst of that, feel. Let yourself feel for just a moment the pain and anger and rage that rises in your heart because of what this person has done. Be honest and specific and even hear God agree with you that what they did is wrong. And tell God what you think justice would look like in that person's life. But don't stop. Don't move on and begin to uh, make plans for getting even. Instead, tell God that you no longer want to live with anger in your heart. That instead of holding on to it, you want to give it to him. And if it helps you, sometimes what I have done is I've held my fists clenched, imagining myself holding on to the anger, and then release them, opening my palms, saying, God, I give this to you. To let him be the one to act with justice and mercy as he sees fit. And then, as hard as it might be, ask God to help you love your enemy. Ask him to bless them as he's blessed you. Ask him to free you from the desire of revenge, for revenge and to look away from your enemy, from the pain and hurt, and instead look into the face of Jesus. Father, may we be honest with you. May we leave our hurts in your hands. And may you give us a love for those, even those who persecuted us. We pray this in Jesus' name.